Well, let's get started. Appreciate you guys' fellowship and praying for one another. So tonight I'm going to look at uh, the last official, I think. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but probably the last official look at this idea of rethinking the gospel. And in particular, uh, thinking of the gospel as the good news and letting its definition expand beyond uh, our traditional doctrinal thoughts about the gospel or the necessity by some theological systems of limiting it just to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, certainly the death and resurrection is a very significant aspect, but honestly, the death and resurrection of Jesus wouldn't really be of any effect, of any significance, if not for who Jesus was, why he was sent, and the nature of his connection with us. Uh, otherwise, he just would have been one of many religious or political or social leaders who were wise and who got in trouble for that wisdom and died. But that's not what happened, and that's not the effect of it. So uh, when I first started this, I started, like I always start stuff, I, I, I just think, well, this seems like an important topic. Felt like the Lord was on it. Dialogued with him about what to share and say. Found some surprising things uh, as I studied. Um, but as we've gone on, I am more and more convinced that how we think about the good news and that we think about the good news and don't relegate it just to a doctrinal position as part of our Christianity or our denomination or our church affiliation is uh, something so incredibly important that I'm really thrilled that the Lord privileged us with the opportunity to look. So, Father, I ask that you would help us get through the, the Scripture into the thought, into the heart connection that is a part of the gospel that we're here for tonight. And then I have to say to you, Father, that I am so stunningly grateful for the beautiful thing that happened today that brought us a word of encouragement and a testimony of your presence in our lives, your heart toward us, and your willingness to wrap us in you and keep us in you. And so I just pray that we can get through all of this, that you would be glorified and that your people would be edified, Lord, in Jesus' name. So let's uh, take a quick look. We're going to celebrate the good news of our union with Jesus. And I'm not trying to just co-opt and limit the word my own self. That's what the good news is, okay? So we've got a little bit of review. These are those six trouble points. There's one I want to emphasize a little bit. When reducing the plan of redemption or the story of Jesus, we can believe and accept from the outside without relationship. We've covered that a couple of times. I think that's really true, and I think it's super dangerous. There are many, many, there's not a single Christian that doesn't have a relationship with God, but there are many, many Christians that live as if they didn't. They live in the insecurity and the doubts and the sense of distance and separation between them and God. And that's partly because you can believe from the outside if all it is is a story. Uh, Jesus is often only a part of the gospel and not the good news himself. This is something that I think, you know, you can, uh, you can preach the good news and Jesus only comes into the equation when it's time for that person to f own up to their sin and fess up to their sin. But Jesus is more central to the good news than we can almost find words to express. And let me try and come up short to prove my point. The good news is about the heart of the Father wanting to create children to become sons, to be conformed to the image of his son. And if you track those, that thinking a little bit, the purpose of it is that we could be God's children conformed to the image of his son. That means that Jesus was the center point of the focus of the heart of the Father at his first conceptions of creation and the plans to redeem. In other words, what he decided he wanted was what he saw face to face in front of him, which John said in the prologue, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with, pros, face to face with God, and the word was God. So it's not just that Jesus is centerpiece in a redemptive plan. He was centerpiece in the creative plan. And you could hear that in the prologue to John when it says, uh, through him was made, and without him, nothing was made that was made. 
In Hebrews, it says he's the one through whom God created the cosmos. So see, Jesus is the centerpiece, but not the way we think. We limit him uh, and the events of the cross to that center point of focus. But it's the person of the Son, the person of the Logos, the person of the Word, that is the centerpiece of the affection of the heart of the Father and the Spirit. And that sets the context for us to now understand the gospel, the good news, and particularly to understand what is being offered to us. We are being offered, okay, we are being offered a place in the relationship between the Father and Son that has existed forever. And if you don't think that's true, let's look at one of these other ones here. If limited to the events of the cross, what of Jesus, the Creator, his incarnation. How many of you ever spent any time in your Christianity thinking the primary function of Jesus' incarnation was so that he could have a man side, a finite side, a body side, so he could die? That's what I was taught when I was young. Let me tell you, the incarnation is way more than that. It's way more than him just putting on an a abusable suit so he could be beaten beyond recognition and then die. What about his bodily ascension? See, he is the centerpiece before time that has now manifest humanity's place in the intimate fellowship of the triune God. The Father, Son, and Spirit now share oneness with one of them possessing a human body. Now that's deep stuff. I don't know how that works. I don't know how that works. But that is the, the, the degree of the centerpiece of Jesus in the, in the gospel. Uh, his bodily presence in the triune God. Okay, this is just an unfortunate reality. That once a story gets told a few times, you can believe it without being in it. It's that rare story, that rare poem, that rare book that draws you in where you live it and experience it. Some of the great epic pieces of literature that have endured through time do that. They allow you to get in there and your nobility rises up with Frodo's or with Ivanhoe. Your ability to overcome uh, judgment and persecution. uh, What's that? The Mask of Monte Carlo or... um, Yeah, you know, some of the... Pieces of literature that are just fantastic. Count of Monte Carlo, Count of Monte Carlo. Or your swashbucklingness with the three musketeers. You can see yourself. I could see, used to, before I lost a lot of weight, I could see myself as that big guy. But anyway, believing the story is not the same thing as knowing God. And eternal life is knowing God. God's motives are given very little value. This is, was, the, I think, one of the recognitions and the pet peeves that I ended up uh, that motivated me for this is I'm sitting here and I just see the heart of the Father revealed and revealed and revealed in another light and revealed of another facet and revealed in another way. And then I, I, I talk with people, I pray with people, and, I, and they, they just they don't even take it into account when they try to interpret his actions or his motives or his, his things. So the gospel is about the heart of the Father. And then lastly, it's aligning with the plan replaces the most important thing of it, and that is that all of this is so that you and I and our neighbors have a union with God. And to live Christianity or live a form of Christianity that does not recognize and celebrate the oneness with God that he died to provide is just criminal. All right, so thinking of the gospel is good news. We went through this last week helps us recognize, begin and express our, uh, and, and, and love and sense the purpose of the Father in his heart for us. Secondly, the good news is Jesus, literally, and it's about him. And lastly, the good news is what already happened to us in Jesus, and that's what we're going to concentrate on a little bit tonight. All right, so uh, these are some scriptures we looked at earlier. Uh, there's about a 1,000 that you could pick out of the New Testament that would do the same thing. I switched over to the Kingdom New Testament from N.T. Wright, uh, I loved his wording, and it's just enough different that it makes you think about it. 
So this is John 3, 16 and 17. Last week I promised you I'd do a little bit of getting the Greek in the weeds to show you, so we're going to look at that tonight. Uh, So this is John 3, 16 and 17, but you'll see that it's got enough unfamiliarity with Wright's translation that it makes you think about it. This, you see, is how much God loved the world, enough to give his only special son so that everyone who believes in him should not be lost, but should share in the life of God's new age. After all, God didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world could be saved by him. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so there's a significant word change that I want to talk to you about, and it's in the second line down here. uh, So that everyone who believes, that phrase, that everyone who believes, in the New American Standard, King James and others, it says it's translated whosoever. And so it goes, whosoever believes is not. And what I noticed when I was studying that out is, first of all, I looked at the words that are behind it. I'm going to show them to you in just a second. But I realized, wow, the way that is written with that word whosoever, it makes the centerpiece not the motive of God, which was love, but it makes the centerpiece the conditional statement of whoever believes. You see what I'm saying? And I read that a lot, thinking that John 3.16 was the promise, but it was a promise that pointed out the conditional nature. But the truth of the matter, and this, this gets closer to it, this, you see, is how much God loved the world. That's what we're talking about here. He loved the world enough to give his only special son so that everyone who believes in him should not be lost, but should share, and this is also a neat expression, share in the life of God's new age. New age, aeonian life. We call it eternal life which I think is what it, it's fine to call it eternal life. And we, we think about it as a good thing, but we don't realize it's the point of everything. Jesus says in John chapter 17, down in verse 3, after talking to his father, he said, this is aeonian life. This is eternal life. That they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you sent. That's what Jesus is talking about. And I want to set, uh, bring to your remembrance just a little bit of the context of this. This is in John chapter 3. And in John's narrative, the way John lays out his history, he builds case after case of what Jesus was here for and that he was the divine son of God. So this is where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. It's the first direct encounter that is recorded of Jesus speaking the truth about who he is and what he's doing and his theology. And it involves uh, being born again, being born from above, and it involves this, the declaration of the motive of God, the Father. And it involves one of the first declarations of Jesus being the Son and identifying God as his own Father. That was ultimately what got him killed. But in its case with Nicodemus, and if, you, uh, if you've ever watched The uh, Chosen from season one, I think it's the third episode, where Jesus has this encounter is depicted with, with Nicodemus. And it is so freaking beautiful, it's not even funny. And you see the struggle of this religious leader trying to re-grasp this concept. And this is one of the centerpieces in my theology about childness. Because just a little bit before this, he says, unless you are born again, you can't enter the kingdom. You can't see the kingdom. And what the product of being born again? Being a child. That's the promise, again, in the prologue of John, that as many as he came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him gave he the power, the authority to become children of God. So anyway, uh, these two things are, are very special. Now, here's, here's the part I want you to see. So this is a little excerpt out of one of my online, lex- or online interlineals. And if you don't believe it, you can check with Dan. He's got an interlineal with him too. But this is those words right there, that everyone who believes. So that's how he translated New American Standard translates it, whosoever believeth. Okay? But here, here's what it is in the Greek. Hina pas ho pisteum. Hina is the word that translated there. But the, the most basic translation of that word in this tense is in order that. It's a causative statement. It explains the cause behind something. Okay? And then we'll go to believe first. I got my notes here. I'm going to 
I'm going to uh, amaze you with my trivial knowledge of Greek. All right, so pistion is the present active voice, the present participle, a masculine gender, singular in number, and nominative in case. Now, if you scratch very deep, you'll get to the bottom of my knowledge of these things. <laughs> but the mic is still open. Uh, the present indicates a sense of happening now in most tenses. There are other, when it's combined with other moods and stuff, it can be different. It can be like did happen or will happen. But this is just the basic, uh, simple sense of something happening now. So we're talking about the idea of believing. So we're talking about believing happening. Then the active voice is simply the action being done by the, the subject, implied or the noun that it refers to. In this case, it's an implied subject. The present participle, the idea of a participle, uh, has something to do with time and the action state of the verb. In most cases, this, this one word, pistion, by itself, by itself, I mean the, uh, participle, present participle would be translated while, when, or as doing. And it talks about the, the, the timing and the action of the verb. The masculine gender is an, is a, uh, not to be confused with limiting it to men. It's the native gender in Greek. And so when you're using generalized statements, they almost always use the masculine gender. When they're talking specifically about something that is gender specific, like a woman or a girl or something, you'll find the feminine. But that transfers over to when it's talking about a group of people, it can easily represent both men and women. So there's no limitation in the masculine gender to this belief only being from a man. Does that make sense? Okay, singular in number, it does break out even if you're talking about a group, the individual's application. So it applies to a single person. I can tell I'm 30 seconds from losing you. And the nominative case is just naming it, and it names the action of the verb back to this idea. So the verb is to believe. It's speaking of a group of people who are doing it now while it's being talked about. And it speaks of the individuals of that set. Okay. Pas ho is the word translated in the King James and in the New American Standard and a lot of other places as whosoever. Ho is a direct article. It, it means the... Um, well, it, it's translated variously depending how it combines with the other case as the, this, that, depending on whether it's pointing to or it's identifying uh, he, she, and it but it, it, would, it would be the whatever. Now, Greek uses the direct article a lot. It doesn't get translated in English a lot, but here's the definition of it that I pulled out of the BDGA. A primary word, uh, all, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, the article is a word placed before a substantive, uh, a noun or a pronoun, to sharpen its identity in some way or to draw attention to its identity in some way. So it's not a boy, it's the boy. Okay? So that's, that's what that's about. All right? So that's the article, and it means the, T-H-E. Then pas is a very basic, very fundamental, simple Greek word. It is a primary Greek word, and it means all, any, every, or the whole. All, any, every, or the whole. Okay, so if this were translated as simply as possible without taking some of the grammatical issues and context in mind, it would be translated something like this. Can, in order that, the all believing, because it's an active present tense word, believing. So what this is saying and I think this is super exciting. It's saying that God's motive of love caused him to send his son with this purpose. In order that the all believing would not be lost, but would be saved. Now, we don't have to figure out how that might be 
we don't have to uh, throw our, our, our uh, ring in the bucket of some doctrinal statement like universalism or annihilism or whatever the case is. What, we, what I want to encourage us to do, though, is realize that it's okay. Matter of fact, it's honest and it's safe to acknowledge that the Scripture here is not offering a conditional statement. It is explaining the purpose in the heart of the Father for sending His Son. The Father sent His only begotten Son so that everyone believing would not be condemned, but would be saved. This is why realizing that the gospel includes the motive of the Father is so critically important. In order that the all believing. Now this is going to get a little more important as we look at a couple other words. So anyhow, that's the the Greek breakout of that. Um, You could translate it in order that all the believing or that the all believing But again, God's motivation was focused on the outcome of believers being in union with him. Okay, All right, so here's another one. This one was a little bit of a review from last week, but the reason we want to think of Jesus as the good news is because he's the one that was announced first as it. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. What is that good news? Today in the city of David, there has been born for you a little baby. Or like uh, Will Ferrell said in Talladega Nights, the baby Jesus. I hope you didn't watch that movie. It's very irreverent. (laughs) The baby Jesus. The baby Jesus. The baby Jesus is the good news. And Will Ferrell knew it whatever his name was in that character. How many people have seen Talladega Nights? Okay, did you know that? Culture references. Uh, do you see what I mean by saying that, that we must understand that the good news is not a story about. It is literally the one who was born. It's him. He's the good news. He's the good news to the Father because he's the one that united us with him. He's the good news to us. Yes, because of salvation, because of his blood, because of his life, because of his incarnation. But there it is. It's Christ the Lord. All right. We're back to uh, N.T. writes. Here's the good news about us and Jesus. Now, we looked at this first last week. I just want to refresh it and then go to the next one. When we were enemies, you see, we were reconciled to God. So if I ask you, when were you reconciled to God? Is there ever a point in your Christian life that you would have thought about the day when you confessed your sins and accepted Jesus, and you would have said, uh, mine was a week before my 15th birthday uh, in my living room in, in uh, Apple Valley, California? There's a long time I would have said that, because I thought that's when it happened. It didn't happen then. It happened before then. It happened while I was his enemy. It happened while Pilate was his enemy. It happened while Pol Pot was his enemy. It happened while my grandfather was his enemy. Before he ever made a choice. While we were enemies, you see, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Peter said that, uh, that we have been uh, brought into a new and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the active cause of this reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, 19 there, says that this is the message that he's given us, that God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself. It matches perfectly with what it said in John 3.16. After all, he didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world, the cosmos, could be saved through him. There is a definitive act at the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross and afterwards. And then the carrying of him and us to heaven in that definitive act that was this act of reconciliation. Now, what does reconciliation mean? It's the word katalasso, and I love this definition. This is out of the the BDAG as well. Reconciliation is the exchange of hostility 
for a friendly relationship. Please don't allow yourself to be suckered into thinking of reconciliation as a theological, transactional word. It is utterly relational to its core. Reconciliation is not making the two ledgers balance. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't add any light to it at all, but it is a relational, relational, relational truth that has to do with the exchange of hostility for friendship. Hostility for benevolence. Now, this begins to make a lot of sense when you read Paul that says to the Colossians, at one point, you were with them without hope and without God in this world. You were alienated, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. We have grown up in Western theology thinking that our true nature, our true identity, is hostility and sin. No. Hostility and sin is the byproduct of alienation. Reconciliation that took place while we were enemies is the exchange of that hostility for a friendly relationship. God has a friendly relationship with every person on the face of this planet from his perspective, through his son, in his son. A great number of us don't know it. And a lot of us that have prayed to prayer don't know it. But it's true nonetheless. I'm reminded of that simple story. When you close your eyes, it doesn't make the sun go off. It still shines. God is disposed toward us. If we were to go back and add the next verse of the announcement about the birth of Jesus, it concludes with uh, to, to men with whom he is well pleased. He was well pleased when he sent his son to be the baby Jesus. Okay. Here's another one, Romans 5.18. Now listen to what this says, and just let it say it, and don't get your, your uh, doctrine in a, in a hackle, you know, or your panties in a water, whatever the phrase is. So then, just as through the trespass of one person, who's the one person? Adam. What he's talking about. So then, just as through the trespass of one person, the result was condemnation for all people. Even so, through the upright act of one person, the result is justification. Life for all people. Again, I'm not asking us to adopt a doctrine that has a nice, tidy place to put this. But I am saying, don't give yourself permission to ignore what the Scripture plainly says because you don't understand how it can be. Because I don't understand how it can be either. Let's read it again. So then, just as through the trespass of one person, the result was condemnation for all people. Even so, through the upright act of one person, the result is justification, life for all people. That's pretty straightforward. That should create an understanding of God's expectation of the all when he sent his son. Now, let's look at another one. 1 Corinthians 15.22. All, pas, same word in John 3.16. All die in Adam. There's not a single Western Christian that would argue with that point. I'll die in Adam, either by virtue of Adam introducing sin to the world and sin producing death, because all sinned, or if you want to go into a, a Catholic or um, maybe a consistent Reformed theology, because of a thing called original sin. I don't think that's the best way to interpret it, but nobody disagrees that I'll die in Adam. Nobody has a hard time understanding what the simple meaning of that is. Every single person in the history of the earth died in Adam, or through Adam. You see? All die in Adam. You see? And all 
will be made alive in Christ, us. Same as the all, except there's no direct article. What is the motive of God? The motive of God is that in Christ, all will be made alive. What is the desire of God? Second Timothy says that uh, God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter uh, 3.9, it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There is repentance that's needed. There is a response that we have to do. But the motive of God, the good news, is that this is what God intends for humanity. And as part of humanity, this is what he intends for you and me. And he has the resources to do a pretty good job getting it there. So, the good news is the Father's heart for us, fulfilled in Jesus, making room for us in him. Now, I'm going to read something to you from, again, Jesus, The Undoing of Adam by Baxter Kruger. This is in a last little section. Last week I read out of his uh, Why Did Jesus Die chapter. This is a, a fairly lengthy section, but we've got some time. Uh, out of the second chapter called the truth or called the evangelical theology. So here's what Baxter Kruger says. And listen carefully. The very essence of the gospel lies right here in Jesus Christ himself, in his humanity, in his incarnate relationship with the father and the spirit, and in the mysterious way in which he included us in this relationship. For the great conversion of his humanity to his father wrought out through 33 years of fire and trial and decisively accomplished in his death and resurrection was a vicarious event. The word vicarious, if you don't, if you're not common usage, means an event that affects others on behalf of others, that, ha- that, that impacts other people. The miraculous and wonderful truth is that we were included in his baptism. Remember Paul said, do you not know that when you were baptized, you were baptized into his death? In his resurrection. Remember Paul also said, if you are included in his baptism, then you are also included in his resurrection. And his ascension. Remember, Paul said, you are seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. We are included in his his death included in his resurrection, and included. Paul, in another place, says, when he died, you died. When he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. When he ascended to the Father, he took the whole human race with him to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, inside the circle of all circles, into the very life of the triune God. With this and this alone, the Father is at last Kruger says, thrilled, but I say with him, satisfied. We've turned the satisfaction of God into the appeasement of his wrath. The satisfaction of the love of the Father that sent the Son so that the all could be saved and not lost is fulfilled in Jesus gathering up humanity and seating us in himself at the right hand of the Father. Remember in John 14, 20? In that day you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. Lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. With this and this alone, the Father is at last thrilled. For our exaltation and adoption in Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the primal decision made before all worlds began. It's the fulfillment of the dream of the Father that was expressed that before the foundation of the world, we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That was before Adam fell, by the way. Would Jesus have, have come and incarnate as an incarnate one? Even if Adam didn't fall, he would have had to. Because he didn't just come to die. He came to unite the finiteness of humanity with the infinite nature of God. 
So yes, that was plan number one. That wasn't a reaction to Adam's screw up. Upon the homecoming of the incarnate son with the human race gathered in his arms, the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption was unleashed upon the world with the singular mission of leading us to know this truth. Didn't Paul say, because you are sons, God sent his spirit into your heart to cry out, Abba, Father, not to make you a son, not in response to your conversion, because you are sons. He sent the spirit of his son into your heart to cry out, Abba, Father, to know the truth. The spirit was sent to testify of Christ to bear witness with our spirits that we are children of God in Jesus and in bearing witness to call us to believe the truth so that we can experience its liberation. Are we still in bondage? Yes, but it's to ignorance, ignorance of this reality. The Spirit was sent to testify of Christ, to bear witness with our spirits that we are children of uh, God in Jesus and in bearing witness to call us to believe the truth so that we can experience liberation. The Spirit testifies of Jesus Christ as the Father's beloved Son, who sits at his right hand, and to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of the human race, who has searched the universe for us, found us, and taken us home. As he leads us to know the truth, not just in our heads as a bit of theological trivia, but in our souls as the surest thing in all the world, he brings us into the baptism of assurance. For to see ourselves seated with Christ at the Father's right hand, to see ourselves loved and cherished, embraced and accepted by the Father, delighted in, is to know untold relief and hope and peace and the deepest and dearest of all assurances. Such assurances, in turn, begin to war against our ingrained anxiety and to deliver us from its stepchild self-centeredness. And I would say its stepchildren self-centeredness and fear. Fear of abandonment, fear of inadequacy, fear of failure, fear of rejection. I know loving lifetime Christians who still hold in the back of their understanding, in the back of their heart, a potential fear of not measuring up when they stand before God. We become free, and here's, here's where, where discipleship comes. And when you find this in a person, your spirit just sings. It just is released to them. We become free to go out of ourselves. Remember? Adam turned in. He hid. When he fell, his world got smaller. When we understand this, our world opens up. And why shouldn't it? It's eternal life. It's everything. It's the kingdom. We become free to go out of ourselves, to notice others and to care for them, Free to know and be known, to love, and thus uh, free to experience real love and fellowship. And in such fellowship, the very life of the triune God, the great dance of life shared by the Father, Son, and Spirit, is released in our lives. I could go on, but I think that's enough. This is such a fundamental understanding, what the gospel is, what the good news is. And... You almost can't make it too big, but you can clearly make it too small. It goes back and embraces the intention in the heart of Almighty God as they sat loving one another, Father, Son, and Spirit, and devising a reason to create. Creation was not a fiat act. It was not an accident. It was not a crap shoot. It was designed to bring, to create and bring us into the divine love and life of the Trinity. We're not outsiders and we never have been in the heart of Father. We have alienated ourselves through sin and we've run and hid in the smallest possible places, the darkest possible hiding place. And Jesus came into the darkest place, experienced it with us, yet never lost sight of who he was or who his father was. And that is why the very next thing he says after that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His father. His father. 
He went to the depth of our blindness and he carried with it his unshakable knowledge of the love of the Father. And that belongs to us now because of his identification in that dark place. That's the gospel. And you can, with confidence, talk to any person on the face of the earth and know that that is as true about them and true about God's attitude and perspective of them as it is for you. Do they know it? No. Do we need to get better at helping tell that story? Yes. But the good news is the Holy Spirit's on our side to do so. So, I have a... a I, I, yeah, that's good news. You don't need to be embarrassed to call it good news once you get it, your hands on it. And Father, please give us the grace to receive this and understand it. Now, uh, we live in really screwy times. Would you agree? People are being threatened. I read an article today that uh, the UC Medical Center in Denver took a woman off a kidney transplant, scheduled kidney transplant, because she wasn't vaccinated. In spite of the fact that a friend of hers was making a private donation of a kidney. Now, that is inconceivable to me. It's inconceivable. So there's a lot of strange things. Uh, I, I, I heard some talk on an interview about collectivism and how the way it's being thought of now is, yes, it is possible that if you vaccinate your 15-year-old child, he might have a heart reaction and he might even die. But that's an acceptable risk because generally the vaccines will help all the 15-year-old kids. And so there's just some really amazingly weird thinking. And I'm a pretty faithful guy, and I know this stuff, and I believe it. And yet I was still getting a little bit worn down. So uh, I had one personal uh, breakthrough last night. I had the first full night's sleep that I've had in several months. And it's through some things the Lord's helped me do with praying and, and uh, meditating a little bit and tapping and doing a few weird things. But nevertheless, I, I woke up this morning having slept the whole night through without having to get up to, for any reason. And I'll leave the details out. But uh, that's not common. And uh, I immediately woke up with Jason on my mind. And Jason is uh, one in our midst that is facing um, a vaccine mandate from his company and uh, at the expense of his job. And he's got like eight days to have this resolved. And so uh, anyway, the Lord spoke to me about a way to help Jason. And I was praying about it and I was pretty excited about it. And I got up this morning and I tackled it as a little project and I was going to send what I had written to Jason. Uh, and this wasn't the first time we talked about it, but this was a brand new insight on it. And uh, I was going to send it to him, but I wanted to be sure I didn't get him in trouble. And I sent it the right email address. And I opened my phone. And lo and behold, he had sent me a text with three photographed pages out of his journal that the Lord had spoken to him last night. And so I'm going to ask Jason to come up and read that. Because it's not just a word for Jason. I believe it's a word of encouragement that emphasizes to me in such an illustrates to me in such a beautiful way the reality of our union with God and his intimate commitment to you and I in the midst of the most difficult of life circumstances. Doesn't matter what. Jason, go ahead and grab the mic. All right. And you can tell any other backstory if you want. Well, yeah, it was about one o'clock this morning. And so um, I was pretty lucid actually at that time, you know, you're kind of, but my mind started racing and then I immediately, I mean, it was just like, I felt like God said, you should write this down. Okay, cool. Write it down. Now it's been a while. You said since you had an experience like that? It's been a little while. Okay. Yeah, I've been a little while. And so this is the way that it went. <clears throat> I said, father, what would you say to me in this hour? I want to know what you, I want to know how you see this situation. Fear is captivating the hearts of my children. It doesn't, it does not have to. How many times and in how many ways must I say, fear not? Don't be afraid. Peace be with you. Many are searching for the problem to their pain. It is the pain of unbelief. 
the pain of not embracing the truth that they are loved, adored, and that they are mine. Many fear what they do not know and understand, that they truly are my sheep and that they can hear my voice. They are swayed by the reasonings of the carnal mind. They are wooed by intellect and the promise of the alleviation to the problem of their pain. They gravitate emotionally to the promise that only the blood of Jesus has provided. Promises of hope and even miracles that are only found in me, only found in Jesus. The blood of my son is the cure. The blood of my son is the answer. It is not in a vial nor in a needle. It is in the faith in the prophet's words that by his stripes you are healed. Have no other gods before me, son. No false idols. You need not fear. I'm in him and he in me. And he is in you and you in him. Do you get it? Do you really get it? I know, son. There are many things to show and to, and to be told. Be patient as I am patient. Love and kindness lead to repentance. Many of my children are being misled and believing in false idols because they do not seek me. They refuse to hear my voice. So I answered, I know, Father, many truly are afraid of the unseen and the unknown. We're being bombarded with so many things seemingly working to pull us away from your presence, your guidance, and your peace. God said, this breaks my heart. As it is, as it is, I that have come that you may have life more and more abundantly. I want my children's joy to be full, to overflowing and uncontainable. You do not have to fear, son. You hear my voice and a stranger's voice you should not follow. Your heart, your conscience are what is pleasing to me. Follow your heart and follow your conscience. I will lead you in the ways of righteousness. Am I not a lamp unto your feet? Will I not keep you and guide you? Be love, son. Be a light in the midst of darkness. Do not fear in the midst of trials. All things will I work towards you good. Is it not written that these things I will do for those that love me? You are created in my image, fearfully and wonderfully made. I have given you all things pertaining to life and to godliness. To those that believe, they shall inherit the kingdom. They shall have eternal life. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. My son purchased it all. In him you have life. It is the very life, the very inoculation of Jesus in you. Have no other gods before me. Is that a great phrase or what? <laughs> in light of everything. At one o'clock in the morning. The very inoculation of Jesus in you. Strengthen my precious children around you. They need not fear. The very measure of faith that I have given all of you is more than enough. Do you not believe? Stand fast in the day of judgment. I have placed you where you can serve my children. Bring clarity to confusion and confidence to doubt. Do not be dismayed nor moved by what you see or hear. I am with you, and son, I will never, ever leave you. Encourage and pray for those around you, those that may not believe, those that may not hear. I know that there are many competing voices. I am the voice of truth. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Try it on. Things are working for the good of those that love me. Try not to be discouraged. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. You need only believe. You don't have to defile your soul or sear your conscience. You are mine and I am yours. We are in covenant after all. Thank you for being obedient, son. Your resilience and your testimony speak profoundly to those around you. You are my child and all that you see, you are to love. See them through my eyes. Ask and I will answer. Okay, so that was the word that he got last night at one o'clock. I just want to bring a couple things out before we make one more point. Did you hear the heart of the father? Did you hear the distinction that he was able to make between his son 
and his children around him. Not everybody, I don't even know if the majority of people where Jason works is, uh, are believers or not, but the Lord specifically said, some will not believe, some cannot listen, but love all you see. Why? Because I want to see this world like you do. That's how the Father sees him. He doesn't see these people caught in a hard place and the HR department is his enemy. He doesn't see the power hungriness that has clouded the, the reason of political figures and stuff. I just thought that was fantastic, beautiful. Now, let me tell you how that jazzed me. Because I'm flying blind in the morning just thinking, Lord, you want me to write something. What God gave me was two things that I think are significant. Not, I won't go into details because it's Jason's own private thing. But he had, a, he had a, an incident in his life about three years ago where he was confronted with an option that would affect his job. And he went through the exact same procedure to determine that, that he did the vaccine situation. And that is to seek the Father for wisdom, trust the Holy Spirit to lead him into truth, and in the name of Jesus, get the guidance from the Father that as a follower of Jesus and a disciple, he committed to do. At great personal expense, frankly, in that decision. That's the exact same situation. I just got inspired to type that up and I bracketed it with his gratitude towards the HR department. And we, so I'm looking to, to, to I was going to text him to get his email address. I saw this, I read it. I was just totally freaked out. He texted me real quick, said, you got time for a conversation. He was in the car. I read him the thing, sent it to him. He was jumping up and down. It was the most amazing intercession by God between us in this situation. So uh, anyway, I want us to pray for Jason that as he submits this, he is able to do so without compromise, without, and there's a lot of other details that we've learned that we can talk about later after church, but it's getting close to time to worship, or it is time to worship. So, uh, but was that beautiful or what? And the timing, you know, I, I, I do believe all this stuff, but there's, I'd be lying if I didn't say that it was pretty exciting when the Lord wakes you up and in the exact timing, of, the, of, of looking to get his address, I see that the Lord has spoken to him and left room in what he spoke for you for the thing he inspired me to offer you. So, Father, it's, it's, we're super grateful. We're, we're grateful. I'm very grateful for what you're doing for Jason right now, and I'm grateful for his company, that, that, that you're working to turn all this to good. Lord, And we know that there's a possibility that it'll be rejected, or his request, but I don't think so, because you're in it. And you love them and need him there to love them. And so I believe that this is going to be good. We've got a good report from Tommy's. We've got a good report from Sherry's. Um, but Lord, more than even these individual circumstances, they are the fruit of your heart and the good news of how you see us and what you did on our behalf, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, they are the fruit. Our recognition of it is the fruit of you being with us. To help us know it. So I pray for those of us in this room and on this Zoom call. I pray that we would have utter confidence in both the union that you have secured for us and your view of that union for every other person around us. That we could walk the hallways of our work, the places of this world, in the confidence that you see humanity in Christ as your children, and you long for them to become the sons that you have predestined us to be. Give us that vision, Father, and we'll run with it. In Jesus' name, amen.